0: Hi, welcome to Add Passion and Stir. I'm Billy Shore and this is the conversation that we love to have with people who are making a difference in the world, uh, whether it's through their organizations, through their voice, through their platform. Or their opinions and ideas. And one of those is with us today, Essie Cup, a CNN political commentator and a longtime friend of Shara Strength. Many know her from Essie Cup Unfiltered, uh, which you can find at cnn.com. Um, Essie has been, as I say, just an amazing friend of this organization. She appeared on Jeopardy back in 2016 in the Power Players Week and won $50,000 for Share Our Strength in the No Kid Hungry campaign by beating Chuck Todd and author Jonathan Franson. Uh, Pretty amazing, (laughs) Essie. And thanks for all of the ways in which you made a difference for us.
1: That was was a surreal moment. And just hearing you tell it back reminds me of how wild that was and how nervous I was. And um, of course, how thrilled I was to be able to to, uh, win all that money for such an important cause. And, um, uh, now a group of friends and family that I, I am so, um, you know, honored to, to know.
0: Well, you've appeared at so many events, for us, and your voice and your views are so well respected, uh, not just around the country, but around the world. So, for us, it's just uh, an incredible honor to have you as a champion and as a guest on Ad Fashion and Stir. So, thanks for being with us.
1: Oh, the pleasure's mine. Thank you so much for everything you do, and I'm, I'm happy to join you.
0: Um, there's so many things we want to talk about this morning, SE, but uh, I feel like one that we should just acknowledge at the beginning we're taping this on the morning of October 13th, so we're into um, not even the full first week. Of what's been going on uh, in Israel and Gaza, and um, it, you know, there's many times that you and I have done our work where it's felt like the world is on fire in different ways, and it's uh, for me at least, it's never felt more so than this week. Um, and I just wanted to ask you, as somebody who thinks deeply about these things, first of all, how are how are you doing?
1: It's been tough uh, covering stories like this. It's hard for me. It's hard on my mental health. It's much harder for people who actually have to be on the ground over there and see horrors and atrocities that I I have to see on video, um, but at least not in person. And I'm not great at this. I've you know I've been doing this for 20 years, and I've covered war, and I have covered awful news. Um, and I I'm I'm on a board of an organization that explicitly helps children who are victims of war, in Syria and Turkey and Lebanon. So I'm in a way used to the awfulness of this, but you never totally get used to it. And I take this home. I take it personally. I'm not great at compartmentalizing these awful stories. And I feel for my friends, my Jewish friends. Um, I feel for every parent, you know, because I'm a mom first and every kid feels like my kid. It's why I'm so passionate about No Kid Hungry. Um, and so this is this is an awful time, an awful tragedy, an awful news cycle. And there's so much hurt around the world. Um, it's real important to just hug your loved ones and defend your friends. Stand up for your friends because they're hurting right now, and they need every voice. They need every hug. They need every text or email or call you can make. Um, you know it matters and it means more than you might think it does.
0: I think that's great advice, and I know that um, you know. Unlike some of us, uh, like I find myself watching a certain amount of news and then just having to turn it off. But given yeah. what your job is, you really can't unplug. Um, you 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 have to be knowing what's happening all the time. Uh, One thing I will share is I I got a note just the other day from a dear friend of ours, uh, who's been a supporter for a long time named Mario Marino, um, a brilliant um, leader in the tech community first and then in the philanthropic community. And uh, one of the things he wrote to me, it's very brief. I'll I'll just read it. He said, each day I read the news and see things uh, and say that things can't get worse only to confront the worsening realities of our fragile world and our dysfunctional political system thanks for the ray of positive light that your team and the Share Our Strength and No Kid Hungry campaign gives me and thousands of others, uh, and most certainly the youth that you serve. And so, you know, when I think about what he said, and I think about our, you know, the constraints on any one of us individually to make a difference in the world, I think, um, in a way, we just have to keep doing what we're doing and to be that uh, ray of positive light and to show that there's people, uh, who are putting children first as, uh, as, as you just described. And, um, that just feels for me, at least right for this moment.
1: Well, what I have found as a journalist in covering awful news and he is right, it doesn't get better. Um, it only gets worse seemingly. Um, is that m- working with no kid hungry and following the work you do is so grounding and it takes me out of the awfulness because not only um not only are you guys you know helping kids right this is like the most important thing you can do but but it's actually working and it feels you know when i cover you know, war, or even though just the awfulness in in, in politics and domestic politics, it often feels like, well, what can we do? Nothing. There's nothing we can do to make this better or to solve this problem. I know I feel that way about about gun violence. I feel that way about some other domestic policy issues. I certainly feel that way about what's happening in the Middle East and and overseas. But working with No Kid Hungry is so grounding because we are we are helping. It is working. You can see it, um, and there's so much more work to be done. But that positive affirmation, seeing with your own eyes how it it actually is helping, really does take me out of the awfulness. It's good for my mental health. Um, selfishly, <laughs> you know, it's it's part of the reason um, I, I I joined forces because it's good for me selfishly. But it's also so good for so many people. And to be able to measure that and see that, it's really affirming and uplifting.
0: Well, the more we talk, the more I feel like talking to you is good for my mental health. So thank you for, for, <laughs> thank for saying, saying what you said. And before we move on, uh, Essie, tell me the name, uh, so our listeners know, of the organization that you described that's working with children who are victims of war.
1: Yeah, so I'm I'm on the board of Inara, uh, I-N-A-R-A.org. And it was started by a journalist colleague of mine from CNN, um, Arwa Damon, who has covered war, um, for decades. Um, and during the Syrian civil war, which I covered, um, very closely, she started this organization to help the children victims of the Syrian war get medical care and medical attention. Um, and we've since branched out beyond Syria to Lebanon, Turkey, Yemen, and uh, now Ukraine. Um, we're, doing an emergency aid response in Gaza now. Um and we've expanded to mental health um services as well and so you know we're where these kids are the most vulnerable victims, the most innocent victims. In some places no one is helping them. Uh so this was an easy call for me and a great group and if you feel like giving um in addition to No Kid Hungry, please do at Inara.org. Um, these kids really need the life saving care that we're, we're able to provide thanks to donations.
0: Uh, inara.org is the way to find this international network for aid uh, and relief. I'm just looking it up on uh, the website right now. So thank you for sharing that with our, our listeners. Thank um, you. Okay. So, um, you've even in just a couple minutes that we've talked, you've referenced some of the amazing things that you've covered around the world. Can we just start at the beginning and talk about where your career in journalism began? What um, what was the spark for you to say, this is the work I want to do?
1: Well, I, I didn't have this in mind growing up. Um, it's weird. Writing was very natural and easy to me growing up. In fact, I thought it was so easy it couldn't be a career. Like a career, uh, my job had to be much more challenging, I thought. And I got to college um to study art history, and i I kind of wanted to like um, ha- have a a side hustle at the school newspaper, The Cornell Daily Sun. And man, was I hooked the second I got in there hmm. <laughs> as a reporter and a writer. I, you know, it was all I wanted to do. There was nothing else I wanted to do.
0: And Essie, what hooked you? Was it was it like being where the action was? Was it get, being creative and being able to write and report? Was it all of the above? Like what, yeah. what, what, what hooked you? What grabbed you?
1: Gosh. And even looking back on it, it's still the best job I ever had at that school newspaper. Um, yeah, it was the excitement of stories happening in the moment. And, th- you know, this is like col- college stories, not, you know, um, Global stories, but still. Sure, but
0: that, that was your world at the time, right? Yeah.
1: But yeah. Being in the middle yeah. of the action, being on the front lines, being the first to know something. And we like to say in journalism that we sit on the front row of history or we're sort of the rough draft of history. That's so true. And that's really um exciting. And then also just the wordsmithing. I mean, I'm a nerd when it comes to words and, and and grammar and being able to put something together like a puzzle and sort of gaze at it once it's done and feel that sense of satisfaction that I deliberately created something. I deliberately I chose all of these words very carefully. I stand by everything I just wrote because I, because I was careful with it. And now I'm I get to I get to put it out there. and People are going to read it. I mean, that's a rush. It's a much bigger rush than you know I ever get from television, um, frankly. So I knew at the college newspaper that's where I was gonna get my my quote unquote degree. That's what I was gonna do for the rest of my life. And and ever since, that's all I've been efforting to do is is get more more and more writing jobs and and you know, TV kind of glommed on to it. But really, I'm I'm a writer at heart. That's what I love to do.
0: And what if some what have been some between Cornell and and where we are today, what have been some of the really significant stepping stones or milestones for for your career in terms of where you work next and what you loved about it?
1: Right. So I, I freelanced a bit after college, um, writing a- anywhere that would let me. I, I wrote for travel books, like photos, I wrote PR copy. I wrote for a newspaper called The Bond Buyer, which is some financial ma- a, a paper I had no business writing for, but um, they let me copy edit, it. And I just, I would go anywhere they let me. And eventually I got a job at the New York Times and I was there for eight years. And that was certainly seminal um, in my journalism career. But at the same time, while I was there, I wrote my first book and that was on politics. And I got picked up by Simon & Schuster And they put me on TV to promote the book. And I think my first hit was Morning Joe on MSNBC. And I talked about the book. And and then they just kind of kept calling, you know, to talk about the next news story or, you know, whatever was happening. And I kept going because it really did help amplify my writing. And it, you know, it was a symbiotic relationship that worked out for me. So I was always happy to go on TV. But what I wanted was... Again, more writing opportunities and so eventually I did i got I got a weekly column at the New York Daily News where I still am. I've had that column for fifteen years, which i I just can't even believe um and now that's nationally syndicated and I you know I've written for magazines, I've written other books um I'm writing another book right now on on mental health actually um and eventually uh you know I got I got TV contracts and again, I was happy to do that um. To promote my writing, and I write for TV, right? I write my own scripts. I write everything I do for for television. So that's all been kind of just a a blessing on top on top of you know the the other blessings I've had in my writing career uh, to be able to do what I do and have a platform to speak on on television, you know, to an international audience is such a privilege. Um, and I take it really, really seriously. And I'm so honored to have it. Um, but, you know, it's, I did an effort to be to be on, on cable news. And, and yet here I am.
0: <laughs> here you are. Um, well, you know, I was going to ask you, uh, but I think you've already covered it a little bit in terms of why you were drawn to the, the work of Share Our Strength and our anti-hunger and our anti-poverty work. Uh, I also want to connect that to the statement you made about, you know, being a mom First, because one of the things that we're getting increasingly focused on at Share Our Strength is a very high percentage of uh, children who live in poverty, maybe as many as 60% live uh, in households headed by single moms who have a whole set of challenges uh, specific to them. You know, our earliest tagline at Share Our Strength SE, this is going back, you know, more than 30 years, was it takes more than food to fight hunger. So, you know, we've had enormous success getting kids enrolled in school breakfast programs and Making sure their families are involved in SNAP and and WIC and those types of benefits, but we know that it, ultimately it takes more than food to fight hunger. If we're going to help uh, these moms get to a position of you know economic achieve some economic mobility, so that they're they're not dependent uh, necessarily on these on these programs in the first place, because you know most of them use them as a safety net but don't want to be forever dependent on them. Um, so when you think about uh, that work and moms, and then when I think about it, when when I about your voice i'm always thinking about the intersection with uh your faith and how uh, compellingly you talk about uh, the role of faith and faith-based communities say a little bit about uh, what you think that can mean to the work of uh, anti-hunger and anti-poverty advocates
1: well it truly takes a village and part of that village um is a community of faith. Listen, I say this as as an atheist. I'm a non-believer and I I've written I've written a book defending religion. I I have a master's degree in religion. So I don't come at this as someone who um disregards or dismisses the importance of religion in communities and in households. And those faith-based initiatives can be so important and also centering in a community where it can feel like there is no center, um, especially in impoverished communities, communities where where crime is a big factor, where unemployment is a, is a big factor, where scarcity of resources and, and food is a factor. It's hard to find a center. And especially for single moms, even the home can feel... Like an unstable place for children. I I know that. I had a single mom for some time when I was a a kid. Um, So sometimes faith and church or whatever your religion looks like can be the center and provide so many of those resources from mental health help to um, philanthropic help to actual resources and also just a sense of grounding. And community and acceptance and love. That's all so, so important. And our communities have gotten more global, right? As as social media connects us to communities around the world, we can sometimes forget our own backyard. And problems like hunger and poverty are not gonna be solved at an international or even a federal level. I think they're gonna be solved at a community level, most importantly. And so it's really important to engage with your community, especially if you come from a place of privilege where you don't have to worry about feeding your family. It's especially important that you engage in your greater community.
0: I see. I've also heard you speak um, in ways that I thought were really interesting about uh, kind of a political analysis of how some of the social safety net programs that we've been referencing here, now get conflated uh, mostly on the you know the extreme right with socialism and how compassion is considered to be woke when we used to think of compassion as something that was core to you know uh, certainly the work of the nonprofit sector but faith-based communities as well. Uh, share a little bit more of your political analysis about what's going on there
1: Well, that's been one of the most disheartening things for me. I, I come from center right politics and I came up, you know, under Reagan and, you know, W's compassionate conservatism, Paul Ryan, who talks a lot about, about poverty and, and, and safety nets, social safety nets. These were not a bad word, um, not that long ago in, inside conservative, you know, the conservative movement and it's become a bad word. And that's so gross, um, but it got swept up in sort of a wave of populism and now this ma- MAGA wave of of anti-woke culture wars where compassion is synonymous with wokeism and safety nets are synonymous with socialism. And that's absurd, but... It's also this tough exterior that I think belies where most people actually are. Um, I don't think most people are with the far right on these issues. I think most people are empathetic and compassionate. America is still the most giving nation on the planet. We're a very compassionate people. Um, so whatever you know, however the the far right is dressing up these issues, I, I think is. I think is noise that we can all ignore um, because there are real problems and they need addressing. And, you know, I I do a lot of work with folks on the left. A a really good friend of mine is Van Jones. Um, And, you know, we like to say, you know, politics should be like a bird. You can't fly with just a left wing or just a right wing. You know, Van Jones wants to, Wants to save all the babies. And maybe I would ask, well, how do we pay for that? And those are both two really good, those are two really good impulses, right? And just because I ask, how are we going to do it doesn't mean I don't want to do it. And just because he wants to do it doesn't mean he doesn't care about how we do it. That coming together is how it should, how we should approach, I think, every problem.
0: Yes. Um, If you you don't ask the question you asked, you're not going to feed all the babies. That's right. right? If you don't if you can't answer that question.
1: (laughs) Right. Right, and so I think you need both. Right, and I come at that question: How are we going to do it with compassion? Right, I, I want I want to do it too, but if you like you said, if you can't ask that question, you're not actually practically going to be able to do it. And um, if all you care about is you know um, not being woke, you're not you're not going to address uh, so many problems either. So functionality in politics is not something we see a lot of. I mean, I say this as we are still speakerless, <laughs> you know, in the house. Um, but that's what you need. You need both sides coming together to solve a problem. That's what government should do. That's what politics should do. We've really lost the point of public service. It seems now um, a lot of folks, especially on the right, just want to be famous. They don't really want to govern or solve problems. And that that impacts so many things and, and most of all, it impacts our kids.
0: So we used to have a word for what you're talking about, bipartisanship. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I've used, heard of that. <laughs> it used to be something that, that people actually strove for. I worked in the Senate for many years and it was considered a, you know, kind of a, 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 a victory if you achieve something in a bipartisan way. Uh, and, and one of the things that we've actually found at Share Our Strength uh, is that um, that when it comes to kids who are hungry, on a chronic basis, there actually is a little oasis of bipartisanship that can be formed around that. You know, we recently succeeded in getting in December uh, Congress to approve $29 billion in uh, increased summer meals benefits because summer is one of the hungriest times for kids because the meals that they count on in schools aren't there when the schools are closed. So it's $29 billion over. Ten years, and it was done with bipartisan support. Uh, it's one of the largest benefits for kids that's been passed in in decades. Um, but 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 it's it's really isolated. And uh, as we were talking earlier about, it takes more than food to fight hunger. When you start to get into some of these uh, more complex programs that address some of the root causes of why children and families experience it, I think that bipartisanship breaks down. Any any thoughts that you have on? either what stands in the way of building more bipartisanship or how we get over some of the the hurdles. We, we frankly just kind of cobble it together one person at a time, trying not to score points or to penalize anybody, but just to kind of keep educating people until we get, you know, one more and one more and one more, no matter what side of the aisle they're on. But what, what's what's your thinking about how we can bring bipartisanship back as a value as opposed to a pejorative?
1: Well, you're so right, and you, what what Share Strength is so good at is is kind of um, staying out of politics. And I know you know sometimes you you, you got to get involved in the legislation, but this is why you guys have scored so many wins, including that twenty nine billion. That's incredible, and it's because. Um, you keep your head down and do the work. and you know, you make it almost impossible to to um, to find to find a no. And, and that's that's what you need. And as you say, the, the issue of food insecurity is very complex. It's not just about food, um, as you've mentioned. There are so many issues impacting hunger from the opioid crisis. To school consolidation um, in rural communities. I mean, all of these things you don't think about necessarily impacting child hunger all play a part. And I think the most important thing to do is to highlight all of that and educate people about all the intricacies of child hunger and all the things that are, that impact it, um, from you know mental health and uh, unemployment. There's there's so much that goes into it, um, and I think that that can be uh, you know a way to hook more people too, because if you're not really all that interested in say school consolidation, if that doesn't impact you, you might be impacted by the opioid crisis, and you might be impacted by unemployment or or or, or mental health, and these are all ways to talk about child hunger because they all have an impact on it. And so your your education initiatives, I think, are really, really important as, as a public service, educating people about how hunger happens and all the things um, that go into it. I think that's really, really important. And that can help strike bipartisan interest and support.
0: Well, you raise such an important point. And, you know, the, uh, the original idea behind Ad Passion and Stir, which we still... Uh, this podcast, which we still remain uh, pretty faithful to, is that food is connected to so many other issues that we care about. It's connected to our environment, to climate change, to mental health, to the ability of kids to learn. And uh, we often have uh, chefs and people in the culinary community uh, on this show because they're involved in so many causes in addition to our anti-hunger work. And of course, we have uh, journalists, like well, yourself, Jake Tapper, George Stephanopoulos, and others who have been been guests as well, but, but to help people understand as you just did, that there's kind of an intersectionality to all of these issues. And that if we want to be successful, we've got to think about it holistically becomes, becomes, I think really important. And, and that kind of raises for me the question of like, what, um, what role is there for the media to play? Uh, assuming we can't get you to come on every week, which I would, I would love to do. Uh, what other? What, what, what's the role for the broader media uh, on this on this, this set of issues?
1: Well, I think it goes back to what we were just talking about: connecting the dots for people is important in our business. We do that for every story. We connect the dots. Um, we do that for politics. How does this impact that? We do that for. Foreign policy. How how does what's happening over there impact you at home? Uh, we do that on every front, and doing that for an issue like hunger is super important. We can't just talk about it when there's a crisis like COVID. And I'm really glad we did. I you know I know I I talked a lot about hunger during COVID uh, because it was a crisis. But we can't just do it then. We have to do it, you know, through through all the news the news stories, when we talk about the economy, when we talk about unemployment, when we talk about, when we talk about war, when we talk about all the things that are in our daily news cycles, um, you know, child hunger is a part of all of that. Now, obviously we can't inject that into every story we cover. That would look really weird, um, <laughs> to, to our audiences, but we have so many opportunities to connect the dots and raise awareness of an issue that people don't maybe understand um, how, how it works and how we can help solve it. Uh, I think people just don't know. And I, I honestly, I come across a lot of people in talking about Share Our Strength and No Get Hungry. I come across a lot of people who don't know that it's still a problem in America. They really think we've solved it because how could we not? We're you know a first world, wealthy, compassionate country They are shocked to learn how many kids are still hungry and food insecure. And so part of it is just raising that basic level of awareness and then connecting the dots for people. That's something the media can do, I think, much more often. Um, And, you know, I look, we look for opportunities to do that. Um, all the time, you mentioned Jake and and George, and you know these are friends and colleagues. I know they care deeply uh, um, and passionately about this issue, um, and we could all we could all connect those dots for people um, in in compelling ways.
0: One of one of these dots that you've referenced a couple of times uh, is, uh, is mental health, uh, and I've listened to you talk about uh, the importance of mental health in your own life, uh, the experiences you've had with it, the importance of uh, reaching out to other people to check in and see if they're okay, and sometimes talking is the one of the most important things. Um, say a little bit more about, uh, you, you've had a journey on this, and now you're writing a book on it, um, and tell us a little bit about what um, what that book will will be about, because I suspect that it's going to be about what you've focused on the most over the last few years. Yeah.
1: The book is about anxiety. I suffer from um acute anxiety. It's a disorder. And I don't think people understand anxiety very well. I definitely didn't um, until I was diagnosed with it. I didn't know that I was suffering from extreme acute anxiety. And I think if you if you talk about anxiety, people think, well, I'm anxious. Everyone's worried about something, right? That's not it. Um, my anxiety disorder is paralyzing and um, it distorts my reality of the world. You know, to imagine the worst thing possible is around every corner and the worst thing possible is going to happen at any second to to feel that way all day is a very exhausting. It's also irrational and not real. Um so my anxiety takes me out of reality and it puts me into an, a very irrational space and you know, the good news is it was so extreme and severe and debilitating at, at one point, I got help right away. And so I'm in therapy and I'm, you know, I'm on a medication course that that really, really helps with that. But, you know, part of my job <laughs> is very triggering because I cover the worst thing that could possibly happen. And so trying to rationalize with myself to say, well, this probably won't happen to you. Um is true. However, I just covered like eight examples of them, right? So it's very hard for me in my work to not think about the worst things possible. And so I I didn't realize, but I'd been doing that for about 20 years. And the book is about how I'm learning to live without anxiety because I learned to live with it really, really well. And I, I got really good at being anxious and developing habits that I thought were keeping me safe and in fact they were just worsening my anxiety. And so, I think educating people about what anxiety looks like and how it's a it's a real thing and it's it's worse than you probably think and it's not just a, you know, whining or complaining or entitlement or you need a rest. It's a, it's a real disorder. And it's paralyzing and awful. And I think the earlier you can catch it, Before you start developing awful habits like catastrophizing um, and transference, two things I do a lot um, when I'm deep in my anxiety, it's much easier to unlearn those, those behaviors when you're not 20 years into them. So I'm hoping when I finish this book that kids read it, teenagers read it, parents read it, to recognize the signs of anxiety and get help before it kind of takes over your life as it did with me.
0: And one of the things I'm curious about, I think I know the answer, but I want to hear it from you. And I'm thinking about something that the great um, director, Aliyah Kazan, said about storytelling. Uh, And I've always thought about this. He said, the the more personal it is, the more universal it is. And that's almost counterintuitive. But I'm guessing that as you've spoken about mental health, I'm guessing people have kind of come out of the woodwork to say, I have these issues too. And I didn't know it was okay to talk about them.
1: Oh, a hundred percent. I... I wrote about my anxiety very early in because it's what I do. I'm a writer and, uh, you know, I kind of had to write about it and I was floored by how many people reached out to say me too. Um, and though their anxiety might look different from mine, you know, um, I I heard from Naomi Osaka, great tennis player who suffers from social anxiety. Um, that's different from my anxiety. You know, I don't, I don't have that. Um, but to hear from people and hear about their different experiences with anxiety or, or other um, mental health issues like depression um, was so relieving, right? Because it's very lonely to be in a place of acute anxiety or depression. It can feel very lonely, like no one gets it. Um, and in fact, it is so universal and what I say when I when I describe the, the the project I'm working on is that this is my story, and it might be unique to me, especially as a journalist. But I think it will sound so familiar to so many people, either what they've experienced or they know someone who's experienced this. Um, you know, feelings of mom guilt and paranoia and you know, irrational fears about your kid. This is so universal. And while my version of it might be extreme, i I really do feel like it will rhyme to so many people. um and and that's that's where I think it's helpful to share these stories because they they are universal stories. And the more we talk about them, the more universal they become, and the more we end the stigma and the silence around mental health.
0: This is going to be an important book, Essie.
1: Well, thank you, and you know it's important to me. It's been very cathartic to write about it for me. Uh, but I also I don't I don't hear people talking about anxiety in ways that uh, you know would have educated me to what I was going through. And so that's my that's my project to talk about it real specifically, real graphically, real personally, so that someone recognizes it before I did. That's that's the important part for me.
0: When do you think you'll finish writing?
1: Well, Billy, that's the hard part because
0: uh, that might be an anxiety-producing question. I apologize well, for this. Yeah,
1: and <laughs> let me tell you—you know—I've written books before, and i am very—I'm a very fast writer. And I, I, one book I wrote, I wrote in six weeks. Okay, this is so hard because it's personal, and I don't always want to talk about or think about my mental health. Right? Like, if I'm having a great day. <laughs> And not feeling anxious, the last thing I want to do is write about feeling anxious. And so it's hard to, to literally um, and practically do it. It's hard. So I make myself do it um, to get through it. Uh, but it's going to take as long as it takes. And I'm I'm trying not to put a deadline on it myself as much as I want to get it out there. Um, I need to take time with it for my own mental health (laughs) to to survive writing the book about mental health. I need to to take it slowly. (laughs) That is fair. I do just want to make one quick connection that you know, but I want to make sure your listeners know between mental health and hunger. And it's the thing that got me the most invested in this issue is not just thinking about how kids are hungry but the anxiety that comes with food insecurity and not knowing when the next meal will be, or if the next meal is coming that affects kids, mental health at this incredibly formative time in their lives that impacts their development, socially, academically, intellectually. Um, it's so, so important. And it's a huge part of child hunger that, um, I think we need to talk more about as it, as it relates to hunger and make that connection really clear because we all we all care about our kids we care not just that they're fed but that they're emotionally and mentally and psychologically okay and healthy. Well, food insecurity is a huge huge part of that. So I you know, I just wanted to make make the through line between, you know, mental health as it pertains to me personally but also as it pertains to hunger. Yeah,
0: uh, it's it's a great point. And when you think about just developmentally, all the things kids are dealing with and think about your words about about anxiety being potentially paralyzing, and I'm sure it's a you know a spectrum for people at you know at different levels, but um for a kid to be able to, you know, not have that opportunity to be fully present in class, there's enough distractions, you know, in school and in our world without also the anxiety that comes from, from being hungry. Uh, Essie, the last thing I wanted to ask you is when I think about um, how uh, kind of conscientious and diligent you are as a writer, when I look at, uh, you know, on the, on the website uh, for Essie uh, Cup Unfiltered at cnn.com, there's such a, uh, I think just such a like fascinating diversity of topics that you write about from Ukraine to Putin, to politics, to celebrities, uh, how, do you, how do you pick what you're going to write about each week? Is, there just, is it based on something that just has deeply moved you that week? Or how, do you, how, you know, that, how, how does that process start for you?
1: Yeah, no, it's a complicated process. I have, I have editors and producers um, that I work with. And every week we get together to come up with the right thing. And there's a lot that goes into that. Um, I'm an opinion journalist, so I'm, I'm literally paid to give my opinion. So it has to be something I have a strong opinion about. And there are lots of topics that are better for analysis rather than opinion. Um, so those are kind of out, you know, I, I, I really need to feel strongly about something to write effectively or speak effectively on it. So that, that's one, um, that's one bar that we set. Uh, it has to be something in the news, right? It has to be relevant right now, um, that doesn't mean it has to be the major news topic, but it has to be relevant for right now. It has to be timely. Um, so that that's another bar. And then I, I don't like to be derivative, and I don't like to say the thing that everyone else has already said. So I, I like to find a new peg or a new angle or a new, something new I can bring into it. And that could come from my personal experience. That could come from sources I've talked to or friends. I've, I've spoken with, um, lived experience, research I've done, history books. I mean, I like to tie something new into whatever I'm talking and writing about. So it's not just like the thing someone else already, already said. So it's kind of a puzzle and we, you know, it, it could take hours, in fact, days for us to come up with the exact right thing for that week or that day, because we want to get it right and we take a lot of care with it. So it's not just kind of off the top of my head, <laughs> There really is kind of a formula that goes into making it, making it work. And that means making it work digitally, right? We want, we want people to read it. We want it, people to see it, watch it, um, and make it work for me so that I feel good about the product I'm putting out.
0: Well, and again, the place to go to find this is at cnn.com, SC cup unfiltered. And there are so many, I think they're all somewhere between three and a half and four minutes and they're just fascinating and you're going to end up spending most of the the morning or evening, um, going from one to another, as I did. So um, it's really, it's really great work, I see. So um, appreciate you being with us. I want to give special thanks to the team at Share Our Strength, my sister Debbie Shore, who always helps uh, put together this podcast, and our producers at District Productive, Hunter Sensen, uh, Paul Whittle, um, and uh, all of our listeners who can go to Add passion dot com and they can find all of our previous episodes and listen, rate them, rank them, share. Um, Thanks so much for listening. I'm Billy Shore.